Hello and welcome to the Refugee Voices Scotland podcast. My name is Ken Gordon. This episode features Lindsay McDade, a mum and a refugee volunteer, particularly in camps in France. She also has a lot of knowledge and experience of how our system deals with unaccompanied asylum-seeking children and, closer to home, has direct experience of the asylum processes through being a host to an asylum-seeking young person. Lindsay has a strong message for us all, and stay tuned to the end for a special update. We make podcasts that capture refugee stories. I'm here with Lindsay McDade. Hello, Lindsay. Hello. Lindsay, we caught up because I thanked you for following our Refugee Voices Scotland Twitter. Yes, that's right. Uh, And I think this is a lesson and when somebody starts to follow you, you should thank them for it. Definitely. And it was really unusual because normally you don't get a message like that. Yes. You stood out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Oh, listeners, if you want people to follow you and get in touch, thank them. Be kind. (laughs) Lindsay, you got in touch and said that you've got quite a lot of experience around the refugee world, if you like, and with refugees in, in Dunkirk. And this is why we're here. You've agreed to have a wee chat about it. Yes, uh-huh. because I think, well, we were talking on Twitter and talking um, afterwards about the fact that volunteers and people working with young asylum seekers in particular and unaccompanied asylum seeking children, it's such a small world and everything's so interconnected. And what happens when you volunteer in France quite often comes here in Scotland and, and kind of comes back to your life out with France as well. Um, so yes. Now how did you start? Where did it all start for you? I'm a mum. I've got two little girls and in 2015-ish I kept watching all the things on the news and I kept seeing pictures and I kept thinking to myself if I was in that position God I'd really want someone to help me. There needs to be support there. If I was putting my children on those horrible rubber dinghies and getting to, to safety in whatever way I possibly could, even if that was so dangerous in itself, then I'd really hope someone was there at the other end to sort of support me and to provide what I need and to help me get on my feet and be independent and be empowered and, you know, be able to to be able to live my life in safety. So after lots of talking about it, <laughs> took a while, um, and working with some asylum groups in Glasgow and in Scotland, doing bits and bobs, I decided to go to France. Um, so I went into the camps in Dunkirk first um, and it was only meant to be, it was only supposed to be for a couple of, like for a couple of days, <laughs> um, but then it wasn't, it wasn't just a couple of days and then I went back home and I had to go back again and then that was the sort of running theme of things, I had to go back again and again and again because it's it's a funny place, Dunkirk, and these, I, I don't know whether it's the same for all refugee camps. Whilst you're seeing the absolute worst of despair and trauma and difficulties, you also see the sheer resilience of the young people in my case, but the people that you're helping and you're supporting. And it's that sort of blend of complete despair versus utter resilience that's just fascinating and, and makes you feel so proud to be part of that. And the volunteers who literally give up years of their life to go to these places, I had to come home to work and to my children. <laughs> um, so I would go for maybe a week, five to seven days, and then come back home again. And then the following mo- month, I'd find a September weekend or an October break or a holiday of some description and drive back down to France again to help um, in the children's centre in Dunkirk. 
And you always went to the same place in Dunkirk? Yes, uh-huh. um, as a mum, I'm a youth worker as well, it was really important to me to look at the young people who are living in those places and look at what services are available, what safeguarding is there, what protections are there, what education is there. Because young people, regardless of their immigration status, have a right to education, a right to play, a right to all those different things in life and protection as well, more than anything. So that was a place where I felt very much at home. So that's where I went back to. And how long did you do that for? Oh gosh, um, about a year and a half, mm -hmm. roughly. Um, I started in the summer holidays. My husband's a teacher, it made sense. Um, and then went back again and back again. And then eventually in the April, the camp burnt down. Um, but I continued to help within Dunkirk and also in Brussels. Were you there when the camp burned yes, down? Yes, uh -huh. um, I, was, I was there that, that week. Um, and to see the families, to see the sort of end result, I wasn't there at the time of the fire, it was in the evening. Um, but to see the young people and the children and the families the following day was horrendous. Um, they were cramped into really hot, overcrowded gym halls and it was very difficult to watch. That camp was closed eventually, was it? The camp was closed eventually, it never reopened after the fire. Mm. Um, I think the mayor of Grand Synth at the time was quite keen and had spoken about his willingness to reopen it and he felt that what option really did he have? He had a lot of people um, in the area in Grand Synth and he thought, well, what, what, what else will we do? Um, but I think he was under kind of political pressure not to reopen it and it felt like the fire was a sort of natural end to that. And what happened to the people that were there? Nothing. Nothing happened to the people. Not 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 statutory support anyway. Not not immigration or you know any kind of asylum support. Um, they just started to live in the jungle that took the jungle. There's a kind of forest all the way around where the camp was, um, and people started to live there. There was buses after the fire to gym halls. They kind of opened. It was I think it was the summer holidays in France. Or no, in fact it might have been Easter break. It would have been Easter break in France. So kind of gym halls and sports halls were opened up, maybe two or three of them, um, with families getting priority and small children getting priority to be able to sleep within those gym halls. Um, but it was very much like lying on a gym hall floor. You know, there, there was nothing else provided other than that. Volunteers were taking water and food and, you know, nappies for children and things, things like that. Um, but it was very much how you would imagine a gym hall, empty but just full of people. You mentioned the resilience of that impressed you of people. What yeah. example? Do you have an example of that? Oh gosh, um, so many, so many young people. I remember a little boy we were reading, a friend of mine was reading a story in Children's Centre one day, and it was about dinosaurs jumping on the bed. And the story, it was a children's book, a really simple children's book, and it was about all the things you should not do at bedtime, the things that are not going to make you go to sleep very well. And one of the pages was about a dinosaur jumping on a bed. And there was a sort of same refrain throughout the book, you know, that's not what you do when you go to sleep, you know, you don't do that. And this little boy said to me, maybe about nine, yes you do, yes you do. And he's English is quite good. And we were like, no, you don't jump on the bed at bedtime. And he's a similar age to my, my oldest daughter. And he said, yes, yes you do. I used to do that, but now I don't have a bed. And he said, it's so matter of fact. And as a mum, oh my goodness, it sounds like such a small thing, you know, in the grand scheme of all the different things that are going on in Dunkirk, but that really stood with me. The idea of 
them not having the kind of bedtime routines that my children do and not being able to jump on their bed because they don't have a bed. And my goodness, what a position for a parent to be in or for a child to be in in that sort of situation. So for me, all my memories of Dunkirk and all the things that I look back at in Dunkirk were never big, massive incidents and, you know, the kind of things that make the papers. It was all the small things that you think that's not providing a child with a, a decent start in life. That's not giving them the safety and protection and the right to life that they should have. The young people that you were looking after and mm. trying to help, what kind of things were you dealing with? Gosh, um, the majority of the young people that came to the centre um, were within a family unit. They were in Dunkirk with parents, with uncles, aunties, people like that. So they weren't unaccompanied, they weren't alone. And a lot of them came and, and they, they were cold and they were wet. I remember, you know, we were talking about Stephen, Bikes for Refugees and some projects that he, he did and um, myself and Stephen and a few other people organised a, a kind of load to come from Glasgow. I'd been in the Children's Centre, it was maybe in October time and it was October time and a, a little boy asked me to put on his shoes and he was only maybe four or five and because I've got small children I just instinctively didn't think, I just thought he couldn't get his shoe on, you know, that way. You get that every morning when you're trying to do a school run. And I kind of lifted up him on my knee just to sort of sort the shoe and put it on his foot, shoe, his foot properly. And he couldn't get it on because it was about three sizes too small for him. And he didn't have socks and his feet were cold and wet. And again, it's things like this that don't make the papers. People don't hear about it. But those are the things that stick in your head when you think, and you don't have any other shoes. And you think, just push this little boy's foot in this shoe. You know, what exactly do you do in that situation? And it really upset me. And I came home and I was talking to Stephen and some other people and we ended up saying something with the help of some really awesome people. We managed to take the next time we went the following month, we took, took a load of welly boots and shoes and different things like that. It was helpful, it was needed. Did it solve the problem? Not really, because more people came, more people came. <laughs> you know, it kind of never, that level of distribution never ends unless you actually get to the root cause of, you know, what you're, what you're going to do. But it was, it was certainly helpful and it was lovely to be supported by so many people at the time. I should say we're referencing uh, Stephen McCluskey, who uh, in a previous episode to this yes. for Bikes for Refugees, described the filling of caravans and the buying and transporting of caravans, both as ways of getting stuff into Calais and, and Dunkirk, but also um, as shelters, using yep. them as shelters. We never needed the shelters in Dunkirk because when I had started volunteering, it was all sort of wood, little wooden huts that were sort of all lined up. And they are like wooden huts. People, You say that to people and people don't quite understand. They're like smaller than your average garden hut. But Stephen's a, a, a very determined man and he came up with all sorts to take as a miracle my car. We, had, we actually got a van in the end, I think. Um, we drove a van to Dunkirk myself and another, another girl. Um, but it's, it's nice to see everyone kind of come together and make something happen. And it was all on the basis of the little boy with his shoe. And as you said there, no matter how much extra stuff you get, it's still not enough. No, it's, uh, and I think a lot of organisations and charities who work with that level of kind of distribution and passing on things, I think they would all say, my goodness, it really helps. You know, it helps that individual, it helps that family at the time, and it's completely needed. And it allows people to feel as though they're doing something. It can be really hard to, to want to help and think, gosh, what am I meant to do? Especially if you're a parent and you've got responsibilities at home, you can't just, most people don't just decide to, you know, disappear off to France every now and again. 
so kind of being able to donate, whether it be financially or whether it be stuff, um, it can help people feel involved and kind of part of a kind of wider project. But but yes, you're right. You know, it doesn't it doesn't solve the little the problem of the little boy with no bed to bounce on. Mm. Um, that that doesn't change that. What do you wish you'd known before you started? Such a good question because I've been thinking about that a lot recently. I wish I'd known more about developmental trauma. I wish I had known more about attachment and I wish I'd focused more on supporting parents rather than children because you can the best way to support a child is to support their parents to continue that stable attachment and to look after them in the best way they possibly can. And I think it's hard for volunteers going into camps with no training. You know, I'm a youth worker, I'm a mum, but I've got no experience of the sort of humanitarian crisis and, and working in those kind of environments. And I wish, and I always say this, I wish I, we had spent more time helping the parents to, to support their children a wee bit and sort of provide them with resources, you know, allow them to be the ones to give the children the welly boots at distribution because quite often the kids would line up for it or you know the, the way it was the way it would manage where it would be handled or we would have biscuits maybe you know at story time on a th- you know at three o'clock on a Tuesday I wish the parents had been doing it and I wish we could have empowered them to do that um, and we did to a certain extent especially parents with younger children sort of toddlers and babies and definitely I wish we did more of that and I wish I could have understood that more at the time. And again, if, to do this again, if you were, would that be possible? No. <laughs> Not just now anyway. Um, between being a mum, I'm also a mum to a young person who's going through the asylum process now. Okay. Um, someone I met in France and now I look after him. So I'm very committed. I'm committed to, to all my all my children. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't leave him and disappear off when he's going through what he's going through just now. How did you meet him in France? He was one of the young people um, and he's, he's wonderful and he's incredibly resilient and I'm incredibly, fiercely proud of him. But he's in a really difficult situation going through so much uh, so I couldn't really be anybody else. Now you mentioned things, the three things that you wish you'd known more about, developmental trauma, attachment and unparental support. Um, c- developmental trauma, what does that mean? For me it's been a really steep learning curve. I, I have two little kiddos of my own, I do a bit of youth work, do different things for work, but I didn't really fully understand the impact of trauma and the impact, you know, there's been lots said recently about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. There's loads of talk about that in newspapers and, you know, all the different ideas of you can have an ACE score and this can show you what could potentially happen in your life in terms of your health and well-being and what, you know, what that trauma in early life can then become and kind of bloom into, if you like. But I don't think I had a full understanding of it until I started looking after my young person. And for me, it's been a huge, huge learning curve to look at the different parts of his behaviour and how you parent and look after a young person who's gone through that. You know, what their behaviour or what they say or how it seems or how they behave, you know, what what is that really about? Like, 
self-sabotaging behaviour, not being able to sort of take you know positives, not being able to be complimented, all these different things, just sometimes really small or sometimes much, much bigger. Um, so I would have loved to have known more about that before I went to France and to understand why the children behave in the way they do and how something that might come across as one behaviour is really a sign of something else. And all attachment. Attachment's a huge thing for me. There's there's lots of unaccompanied asylum seeking children in Scotland. I think it's under maybe under 150, something like that. Not masses, but you know, there's some. But if you think about your young adult asylum seekers who are 18 and going through the asylum process, they've perhaps started their journey three years ago, four years ago in some cases. You know, they've travelled through different countries, they've applied for asylum, they've been failed, they've you know, gone through all these different things, been trafficked, they've been exploited. And they've not had that strong parental presence or that presence of a carer or someone to give them that strong, secure attachment. And everyone needs that in their life, especially someone who's gone through so much harm. They need that knowledge of that there's someone there to hold, they kind of have their back. And that, that attachment that that person will be there no matter what. And no matter how they try and push that person away, perhaps, because they're frightened they'll get kind of left again or they're frightened that something happens with that relationship. No matter what, that, that attachment and that relationship is utterly important to a young person, regardless of what their backgrounds are, regardless of where they're from. But it's the kind of young adult asylum seekers that worry me because I think, gosh, who's got their back? You know, who's looking after them? Who's, who's been that kind of mum figure? Or dad, but you know what I mean. Um, so I think that's really important. It's something I would love to see more of happen in Scotland and more kind of greater understanding of those, you know, we talk about wanting to be the best place in, you know, best place in the world for children and young people to grow up. Without love, that can't happen. We need love to be the sort of starting point of all these different journeys and the way we look after and care for people. We need love at the very heart of all the processes that asylum seekers have to go through. And at times, from my point of view, reading these things, there's the opposite of that. Indeed. Um, and it's a bit of a, a bugbear of mine. I think, I know some people can think, oh, love, you know, what's, you know, we're talking about immigration stats. We're talking about, you know, numbers. And we're talking about, you know, these people coming and, you know, what, what, how much money should they get? And, you know, all those kind of fundamentals. And I get that. I understand that. You know, you can't, you, you, there's processes. We have to go through processes, no matter how much we like them or agree with them or what have you. There's there's paperwork, you know, and everything. There's interviews and there's all these different things. But until we can value everyone in society, then, then where are we going to end up? You know, until we can look at a young, a young person and see them for what they are, or an adult, and see them and give them care and nurture, then what are their life chances ultimately? How we look after unaccompanied asylum seeking children is clearly a, a huge issue for you. Yes, and how we look after young adult asylum seekers. Mm. Because I think, I think we have to remember that when we think of our own children, we don't necessarily think, oh, well, they're fully grown 18, they're never going to darken our door again. You know, I think there's an understanding that they still need support at 18, even if they don't think they do. You know, even if they're quite happy to fly right off into the world, they still need, they still need somebody to fall back on. 
And I think between unaccompanied asylum-seeking children and, you know, those, th that kind of late teen years, we know that from Scottish young people, we know that from our children, you know, from education and care. We know that young people sort of between the ages of like 15 and 21, they might think they're adults, they might look like they're adults on paper or whatever else, but the reality is they are, they still need support and they still need love and encouragement and someone to fall back on. And that's something that's particularly, it's particularly a thing for me at the moment, it's particularly a big issue for me just now because I look at the asylum processes that we expect young people to go through and by that unaccompanied asylum seeking children and also young adults. And I think, gosh, you know, it's utterly re-traumatising. And hand on heart, how can we put our young people in that position? We would never think to put a young person going through the criminal justice system in that position. We're talking at the moment and in the papers about smart justice and how best we look after, you know, victims of crime and also how we look at dealing with perpetrators of crime as well. But these young people haven't done anything wrong. They're claiming asylum, which is their legal right. So we need to look at how we make, how we look after them better. Now I get that immigration is not a devolved matter in Scotland. Goodness knows how many people keep telling me that. But health and social care and education are. So why is it that immigration continually trumps those other parts of our Scottish Government and our priorities for Scotland? You know, I'd look at the idea of Shinari, you know, being safe and healthy and achieving and all these wonderful positive things. You look at Gurfit, getting it right for every child. Does the immigration process actually get it right for every child? No, of course it doesn't. There's, there's no way it can. So for me, it's about how we look at looking after these young people. And as I say, between sort of 15 and 20, 21, 22, 23, how do we look after them and make them feel cared for and really in, in enveloped within Scotland and within care and, and communities? And where does the starting point for that, do you think? From when they arrive. Um, I had a conversation with someone this morning about this. Care has to start when they arrive because otherwise we sort of lose it. We lose their trust or we physically lose them or they, they just become, you know, swallowed up by processes. You know, we have to remember that the people come in, and the young people come in, they're not just stats. Now, how dry is that? They've all got their reasons for being here and they've all got their right to claim asylum. And we need to look at how we, you know, for our own benefit, how best do we welcome them into communities? How best do we look after them and make them feel safe and nurtured and secure? Because I think we've got an obligation to do that, regardless of what parts of policy are devolved or not. So Lindsay, what's currently on your mind? Oh gosh, the immigration system. Mm. <laughs> um, the immigration system is most definitely on my mind because we're going through that at the moment. I think I'd always, seen the immigration system, you know, you always read about the immigration system, you look at the ways people claim asylum, but until it's within your house, it's, it's a wee bit different. Um, so the immigration system's on my mind just now. Mental health for young people, Scottish young people, I'm sure just as much as unaccompanied and young, young people claiming asylum. Um, all those are issues that we need to try and improve on. As I said earlier, I think love and safety and security and nurture needs to come much closer to the forefront of dealing with our young people and looking after them um, than it currently does just now. 
Lindsay, I'm so glad we connected on Twitter. Me too. Thank you so much for this. No problem. Thank you. We make podcasts that capture refugee stories. Lindsay sent me a message a short time ago. It says, my boy was granted refugee status this week. Love one exclamation mark. She also said that he faces significant challenges ahead recovering from his experiences. And I'm sure you'll join me in wishing him the very best for his future. And you can find Lindsay on Twitter at Lindsay McDade. That's spelled L-Y-N-D-S-A-Y-M-C-D-A-D-E. Follow her. We did. We've got several episodes in preparation, which is a first for us. And this podcast is evolving thanks to people giving us their time, their ideas, and people coming forward to ask to be in our show. Yes, it really is that simple. All we ask is, what's on your mind? And you must approve the interview before it's published. Details at the end. Themes are emerging, both in current shows and in shows to come. Mental health and the power of faith are two that are in the front of my mind right now, and you will hear more in future shows. And in every episode I learn about the challenges our new Scots face. I feel honoured to speak to our new Scots who have faced so much in their lives and demonstrate courage, resilience and a positive outlook. So don't miss a show, subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks to Cara Marie Connolly for writing the show transcript. It's a laborious task and much valued by many listeners. The full transcript of the show is on the refugeevoicesscotland.com website. Remember that if you're a refugee or an asylum seeker who has something on your mind, if you run a refugee or asylum seeking support project and want to tell us about it in our podcast, contact us on refugeevoicesscotland at gmail.com. Also on Twitter at refvoicesscot and on our Facebook page. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and goodbye.